You are listening to the Enormo cast. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. Sold That's, it out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. Out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather, bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes. And don't forget our friends at Defiant Bean Roasters. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Norma at checkout for a discount on great coffee. Or click on the Defiant Bean banner at enormacast.com for more information. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Normacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is sometime in the future. Sometime in the future, I'm in Mexico, climbing with Hayden Kennedy, or Jumaring behind Hayden Kennedy, as the case may be. Hopefully, we're both in one piece, and we weren't dragged from our vehicle by crazed drug soldiers and forced to fight to the death with baseball bats. Since Hayden has at least a foot of reach on me, I'd probably be in trouble. But I think I could use his empathy against him. He'd be like, Caloose, I really don't want to hurt you. And that's when I'd move in for the kill. No talking, just fighting. Anyway, hopefully that hasn't happened. If it has, well, it was a sweet run. And if I come back alive, you'll have to just take my word for it like that El Salvadorian guy who was found in the boat, sands his fishing partner, and just said, yeah, man, he fell overboard. Yeah, that's right. Overboard. Or Anyway, I've been eating fish. Just fish. Okay, let's get to this one right away. This is part two in my epic, epic interview with Lynn Hill. This is episode 52. The previous part, part one, was episode 51. If you have not listened to part one, you should go back and do that. But picking up from part one, she had just mentioned that she made a run to beat the world record in her weight class for the uh, bench press. I looked that up. She wasn't clear if she'd actually beat the record or not, and I couldn't find any definitive answer to that. But nevertheless, the interview is going to turn to the nose. Some details about that great event where she free climbed the nose in 1993, and then subsequently in 94, she climbed it free in a day, which basically we're still collecting our jaws from that. So that's where we pick up. John Long had planted the seed in her head to climb the nose free. And there we have it. Part two of my interview with Lynn Hill. Well, you just mentioned that, and I read this as well, that he was sort of the guy that planted the seed for the nose by mentioning that and, and just basically saying, yeah, give it a try to a certain extent. And this is the early 90s. You said it was um, 93 that you did the original Free Ascent. 
mm-hmm. and then 94 when you did the one day. Yes. So that kind of obviously took over your life then for a little while there. And when was it that you, you know, if you, if you sort of, he mentions this to you, like you could free the nose. It's, it's definitely this like glaring prize that, that was being talked about. It's always been, you know, the greatest rock climb in the world, quote unquote. When did you get to a point that you started to become like pretty confident that you were going to be able to accomplish this goal? It's, the way you describe it sounds way more premeditated than okay. it actually was. So I was living in Europe and France from 91 to 96. And every year I'd come back to California, visit family around Christmas time. And John never actually left the, the apartment that we, were, we had shared until the earthquake of, I think it was 94. Anyway, so I, I came back to visit him. Mm-hmm. And that was in like 91. And I could already see that competitions were developing and going in a certain direction. And who I was as a climber, my background, my interests, my age, because the the younger climbers were getting into the competition game. And they were just climbing on plastic, which was a new thing at the time. You know, we'd make jokes about it, like, watch these people, you know, there'll be climbers that are really good that have never touched rock. And it was kind of almost a joke, but, you know, we could see that, the writing was on the wall. And so I started thinking about, well, you know, I did get a degree in biology. Maybe I'll go back and become a physical therapist, which was my original idea. So I was at a turning point in my life. I wanted to not do competitions, but it was hard to walk away from something that I made money at. You know, I pretty much could always make some money going to a competition unless I, you know, really messed up and slipped off on the first move, which has happened for other reasons, distraction. But anyway, that's another story. Um, I, I I really had to make a conscious decision to move away from that and go towards something else. And I thought, well, I'm fit from being a professional climber, climbing all the time. Who knows what my next step will be? I want to use this to do something that I think is important. So a rock climb. So having this sort of discussion with John He's like, oh, you should try free climbing the nose. And it was like, yeah, of course. California climber, here's a climb that has every kind of style on it. Well, almost. It's it's a big enough climb anyway that it goes from slab to vertical to even overhanging. And I figured that it would be a perfect challenge for all of the skills that I had as a climber. So to me, it was a perfect way of capping my career and retiring as a professional climber. It was not meant to be an extension of my life as a professional climber, which is kind of what it ended up being Mm -hmm. because people wanted me to talk about it. And there was all this marketing stuff that was happening around it. And, and immediately after that, I took advantage of it to go traveling around the world. Sure. I had these opportunities to go to Morocco and Thailand, Vietnam, you know, all over the place. So, of course, that's more of what I wanted to do. And it sort of just unfolded before me. It wasn't premeditated. What you're talking about right now is it just made me realize, I mean, aside from the feat of what you did, uh, of climbing the nose free at, you know, and also, you know, at the limit of what was, you know, at the difficulty limit, Really, that was being done, sport climbing and everything else. But I didn't realize just how perfect it was and why the story 
I mean, you just said it, it became this thing you didn't necessarily expect it to become in terms of, of afterwards. Like it just hit me, you know, like you just said, the, the California girl comes back and, and, you know, also made me think about how, you know, that competition climbing you were doing in Europe, like competitions just never have captured the imagination of Americans. Um, is, I mean, they, they, they try and try again to sort of get us all involved in it. And we just don't love it the way Europeans love it. And we're not as, in so it, I mean, to have this person we'd all heard of, she's this great competition climber and she's Lynn Hill and she's won the rock masters, whatever the hell that is five times, I guess it's in somewhere in like Slovenia or something. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're presented to us in this way that I think American climbers could really like grab hold of the nose El Capitan Yosemite I mean you couldn't have written I mean John Long couldn't have written the script any better it seems like you know what I'm saying like it really like it just occurred to me while you're talking like whoa that's like a magic tale so it kind of is and it really wasn't preconceived in the way that it turned out to be and sometimes that's the way things go in life you know it just was the right thing at the right time and and it was with the right intention i think that my intentions were good with it and and like i was referring to before with the psychological element um i had to be willing to fail i mean it it could have been a glorious failure because i had nobody else to compare to i just tried something and didn't make it maybe sure right and and that's easier to walk away from I think now for for men or anyone to set their sights on that, it's harder because they they now have somebody to compare with. So I sure. think it's it kind of was an intimidating objective for people. Well, and you could I mean, if you'd have done it fourteen a a zero, no one would have. I mean, it would have been like impressive, but you know what I mean. Like it, it's with. 30 some pitches, however many it is, you know, depending obviously on how you work it out. But with 3000 feet of climbing to, to find one, you know, four foot section that couldn't be done is like an imposing thought. It must, I mean, it hangs over the endeavor to just be, okay, here's this one thing I can't do. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean? I mean, it, personally, maybe you would have arrived at a place where you felt really accomplished having done it, but, but to have it come together, I mean, it, was like, how did you sort of deal with, with that idea, this idea of possibly, you know, putting all this time and effort that's being watched? I mean, it, we didn't have sort of the media circus we get nowadays with the internet, but I'm certain you must have been, you know, making some waves even being up there. So, a little you know, bit. talk a little bit about the process of, of overcoming, you know, such a huge goal. Well, I didn't succeed right away, actually. Um, with Simon Naden, who I'd met during the competitions on the World Cup. Very talented climber. Also, I, I got along with him because he was super soft-spoken and sweet and supportive and patient. He was a good partner. And we did not succeed at the Camp 6 uh, Changing Corners pitch. He actually looked like he was going to be able to make this span that I wasn't going to be able to make. And... Um, so the tables had turned because I had been able to free climb the great roof and he was tired and his fingers skin. And, you know, he was just like, no, it's not going to happen for me, but I'll belay you. And he was totally willing to, to throw the towel in as far as, you know, not being able to free climb every step of the way on that ascent. Um, and I, I really respected his attitude, but 
we got to that camp six pitch and we were almost out of food and we were really tired and looked at that and it just looked impossible. And I wasn't sure that it was going to go. We failed. He went home to England and I went to visit my mother in Idaho. And I thought, well, it is a corner after all. So there must be some way to get opposition. So there's my analytical mind again, trying to figure out, well, it's got an angle enough. I think, I think I can figure out some kind of, you know, body English, some weird things. And, and that's actually what happened. Can I ask you something logistically to put this in perspective? Because sure. I'm, uh, you guys just, you, you decided you were going to free climb the nose and then just sort of bagged up and, and headed up there? It's kind of a long story. Um, I, I often spare people of the details, right. but um, the original partner for the nose was Scott Franklin. Sure. He went to Yosemite early. He was living in Oregon at the time. I was living in France. So, you know, this was faxing. I don't know. I mean, the communication back then is nothing faxing. like it. Yeah, well, faxing. faxing. I had a fax machine because we didn't have the internet. Sure. <laughs> and we didn't have cheap cameras either that right. got digital footage and things like that. That's another thing that's t completely changed. But anyway, um, he was in the valley. He was climbing with Todd Skinner on Half Dome and didn't particularly enjoy his experience. And I'm not sure of the details, but I remember him saying, yeah, it's hot. And I, you know, it's, I'd rather go do something else. So he bailed and he said, but you can hook up with my friend, Doug Inglekirk, who's really dedicated to climbing in the Valley and you should hook up with him. So I, I'm, I've already, you know, bought a ticket, international ticket. I'm coming, you know, and so this was the year after, or maybe two years after, um, John said, hey, you should try free climbing the nose. Sure. And then the, the following year, I climbed it with Hans Florin. And, you know, it just so happened that I had a, a French filmmaker that came to Colorado. Actually, we filmed around here a little bit. Your mother, that climb in, mm -hmm. in Eldo. And we climbed uh, a little bit in a few other places. And we went to Yosemite to do El Cap in a Day because he said, oh, yeah, that'll be great. We'll just, you know, film you from a distance and whatever, you know, do a speed ascent with Hans. So my idea was to go up and look at it sure. underneath the great roof because I thought that was the crux. And, and I saw a few little features and I saw that the crack had enough to hang on to that I figured, okay, I'm going to come back and try it. Um, but... I didn't really spend any time trying any move at all. It was just visually, yes, I can do this. So, or I can come back and try it. So now we're talking 1993, Scott's gone, and Doug Inglekirk is not in the valley. Who knows what's going on, but he's not around. But he sets me up with um, his buddy. So the first person that I actually started up on El Cap with the intention of free climbing it was with Tommy uh, Herbert. But... He didn't actually um, stay on board for very long because he went back to medical school. And he's mm -hmm. like, okay, hold on for two weeks. I'll be back in two weeks, and, and then we'll continue from here. And I was like, um, well, you know, I, I live in France, and I'm, right. I'm here now. I'm just going to keep going. And, and he basically just said, here, go out there. There's this section that hasn't done, been done free. And it was uh, right after Sickle Ledge. There's a traverse that kind of down climbs and goes across this blankish face. And, and we saw that it was doable. It was only 12B, kind of touch and go 12B, classic granite style. But he's mm -hmm. like, okay, good, that goes, all right. So now 
we, you know, at that point we were in the stove legs crack system and that was all pretty straightforward. And, and the next pitches that needed to go were the Jardine Traverse. And we knew that Jardine had done it. So we knew that would go. Um, the real suspense was, will the great roof go? And people had talked about other sections, but I didn't know anything about this changing corners. I didn't sure. remember having done it. You know, the first time I did the nose was, uh, probably 1979. So it was, you know, aid climbing style. We didn't think about stepping out of our atria. Sure. Yeah, of course. <laughs> people still don't, but well, on sections yeah. where it's a crack, yes, we, we probably right. did, but like not, not on the changing corners. You just looked at that and went, Oh, what can I get in the crack here? So logistically, are you fixing ropes? Are you, are you casting off and, and hanging out up there for a while? Or? No. So the other thing that you said when you introduced this was I spent all this time on the route. I actually didn't. I came from France mm -hmm. on trips and I think the first time was a month trip and I wasn't there the whole month. I was right. visiting my mom. You know, I, I really only went up a few times. So I went up with Tommy and saw that I could traverse across after the, the sickle ledge. So that pitch. And that's as far as we'd gone. Then I went to a trade show in Reno and happened to run into Simon Naden who was on a camping trip with his now wife and they'd just gotten everything stolen, including their passports and sleeping bags. So at the trade show, I was like, Oh, okay. Well, do you want to free climb the nose with me? And he said, sure. I've never done a big wall, but yeah, love to. <laughs> and so we got a couple of haul bags from, um, some friends, you know, they gave us some gear and got him a sleeping bag. And so we cast off from Reno back to Yosemite to try free climbing the nose. So we didn't do any preparation. We started from the ground. Maybe, did we fix anything? We might've fixed one day just to get a head start, to mm -hmm. get our get bag the bags up. up there. Yeah. I don't even recall. I think so though. So the first day of climbing uh, and staying on the wall, we got all the way up to, did we get up to camp four? My goodness. It's, it was so long ago. Those details are not so clear. Um, it might've been the second night on the mm -hmm. wall. Because Stolt Tower is another common bivy spot, and I know I've stayed there. But um, I don't know. Anyway, I just remember having climbed until midnight. We get to Camp 4, and our our hands are swollen. You know, it's oh, yeah. one thing living on a wall. <laughs> yeah. You're grabbing the rope and pulling, and it's a lot of physical labor in addition to, you know, the challenges of free climbing. Sure, and certainly, yeah. I think I even got a little bit on the wrong crack on the stove legs. And, and I, I didn't want to down climb it and re free climb it. So I just made it work to free climb back into the crack. But anyway, um, we spent pretty much the whole next day on the great roof pitch. So there's one pitch before you get to the roof from camp four. And then, uh, we made it to camp five that next day. And then from there, we went to the top and tried the changing corners, but it wasn't going to work for me. There's very small edges, very long reaches. And the only tiny, tiny little nubbin to stand on was too low. And it's a very smooth face up there. And we were trying the variation that Brooke had tried. So Brooke San, uh, Sandnell, uh, he had this face to the left of the corner that's only like, I guess it's 12 a or something. 
and it's pretty straightforward, just granite face climbing. But then you get to the section that you have to go across, and that's where I knew that I wasn't going to be able to make that. And Simon said, well, you know, I can kind of hang on to these holds, but, you know, my skin is a little bad. If I came back fresh, I think I might be able to do it. But he had to leave, so... Um, on the other hand, I was thinking, well, if that doesn't go, maybe the original aid line would go. But the entry move to get around the corner and, in, well, around and into the corner, there was an old piton. In fact, it's right here. I'll get it for you. <laughs> it's this. Uh, it's not that old, but it was a sawed-off piton that was in the crack, sticking out a little bit, about like that. And that was the only place to get a jam. And we didn't have a hammer, so we couldn't really work on it then anyway. So let me get a little idea of your kind of the way your mind works. So you're down to now pretty much this section is in your mind as, as the only thing left to go. Um, had you climbed the top, um, the, um, the, the face climbing pitch at the end is quite difficult. We as knew well. that that went. Um, Brooke told us. Oh, okay. He had bolted that variation okay and he'd also bolted the, the variation at the very end the last okay. pitch right. so when simon and i got there it was day three or something maybe day four if you count the first day and we were not in any shape to try free climbing sure. 514 and we didn't know it was 514 but um so when we failed at the changing corners pitch we had less drive to try to actually finish sure. and it was simon's lead and it's actually not that easy to figure out where to go on that last pitch because you, you follow this bolt ladder. First you go to the right, and there's kind of an arete. It's pretty cool climbing. And then there's this natural like handrail that you can heel hook on and traverse back into the bolt line. And then from there, you actually keep going a, a little bit left of the bolt line, and there's this amazing flake that you have to reach out to. It's, it's a pretty physical move because your feet kind of cut. And you're hanging on this flake, and you got to kind of lock up and reach to this two-finger edge, really small, and then step your foot up onto the same flake that you were swinging out onto. And there's nothing for your other hand. You just got to do a leg press with a two-finger tip hold and just stand up. And then you're like an amazing location on the edge of this bulge, really steep with practically 3,000 feet below you. Sure. That's, it's really amazing. And then it's kind of just technical climbing from there. It's not over, but you probably won't fall if you know it. But we didn't know the route. We didn't know the free climbing variation. So we had failed on the Camp 6 pitch and then just pulled past that bulge. So nevertheless, you, you leave that trip knowing that this corner is really what the stopper for you is at this point. Mm -hmm. Now, are you able to maintain this like, well, I'll figure it out eventually, or were you kind of like, I don't know if it's ever going to happen, or you well, know, where, where did that, that I can do this sort of mentality come into play, or you know, was there a, a moment where you're like, well, that was fun, but I don't know anymore? Well, at the time when Simon flew home, I wasn't sure that I was going to come back and, and try it again. It was like a glorious failure. Um, not failure, it was all but 20 feet. And and then it started to gnaw on me, like, how could this be? You know, 20 feet, there's got to be a solution. It's a corner. Maybe I can do the corner. And that whole thinking came into play. Of course, I had been 
really tired at the time, and your thinking is different when you're really tired. You just think, oh, my God, can I do this? This is too hard. But then you step away from it and get a different perspective, and that's pretty much what happened. I just thought about it differently and decided, okay, I'm going to come back. But this time I called up Brooke and I said, hey, Brooke, you know, we talked about his variation and whatever, and he had time. They're pretty flexible about leaving work at Metolius. So he said, yes. So we came and um, hiked to the top and wrapped down and and just worked on that section for three days. Okay. That was it, three days. And then we hiked down to the base. I hadn't linked it, but I knew that this is pretty much how I'm going to have to do it, and it's very touch and go, and got to have good conditions and good mental preparation, believing in myself and believing that it could happen. And, yeah, I I was willing to, you know, give it another go. What time of year was it? September. Okay. And you got pretty good conditions? It was hot, right. actually. It's still pretty warm in September. But I would rather it be hot than cold. Because when you're on a 3,000-foot wall, there's a lot of wind. Mm-hmm. And it's not nearly as hot sure, yeah. up there as it is on the ground. And if it's freezing and I can't feel my fingers, I can't climb really, really hard. I mean, actually, the changing corners would be good in cool conditions because... It's very friction dependent. Sure. Yeah, but, I've seen the video. <laughs> but you do need to have feeling in your body. So I was wondering about Brooke. I don't I don't know. Um, he's a good friend of yours. So was there any sort of like reluctance on his part? I mean, he put his time in on it and tried to work out these variations. You know, it, it is the was the big prize in, in free climbing. Was there any reluctance in his part to team up and and with the idea of, of having you possibly be the one who's freed it or no, it's actually something that I respect a lot in Brooke and, and our friendship, mm-hmm. that he didn't seem to have a problem with that at all. He was happy with what he'd done okay, and happy to be a part of this first free ascent. I think that was good enough for him. And sure, he would have probably preferred to free climb the entire route, but he did everything but the great roof and the changing corners. Mm-hmm. And he just saw that it would take too much time and... Yeah, maybe he could do it. I think he probably could have. But putting it together in that situation on an ascent with another partner and all the things that would be required to actually make it work, he wasn't willing to force it to that degree. Whereas other people might take the approach of like, okay, we're going to fix lines and stash water and food and camp here for four years in a row. And every summer we'll go back and, you know, memorize these moves. That's not the kind of experience he wanted. Sure. And, and I agree with him on that. I, you know, I, I was willing to try, but I didn't really want to bring the climb down to that level of just, you know, working it to death. And I know some climbs do require that. Like I'm sure that the route that, um, the Don wall, whichever it's going to be called that route probably would require years of effort because 514 D after 513, 514, 514, I don't know how many pitches of very sustained technical climbing to put that together will require such an effort. It is requiring that. I mean, it's been, it hasn't been done yet, but it it is required. So yeah, yeah, I mean, it's simply, you know, you guys early nineties, certainly um, your career had started with no hang dogging and, 
and you had also worked through what was really the typical expanse of climbing, you know, in the eighties, people started wondering why they can't try moves over and over again and started hang dogging. And, but even in the early nineties, you know, what is, I think seen as typical tactics now to free a big wall really hadn't been invented yet. You know, so this idea of walking up to the base of it and climbing it and trying to free it, that's probably seemed natural. And then, well, I guess since the changing corners is up near the top, we'll go down and have a look at that. But that was just the beginning, I think, of now these like massive kind of ideas of multiple days of rehearsal all over different parts of the route. Um, yeah, it's something that people don't really talk that much about because it's not all that romantic and exciting to think about it like that. But um, if you're interested in pushing the level, I mean, obviously working the moves and and people are using the mini traction. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. set up a rope and under tension so that they can go up there and work it by themselves. They don't even have to sure, ask yeah. somebody to belay them, which is even more efficient. So you can spend hours and hours practicing a climb before actually going from ground to top. So I've always been fascinated by, even with like sport climbing or anything you're trying to achieve with climbing that you have to work at for at least a few days or, or you time-wise it was it was you know an expanse of time between the trips so when you finished it when you guys topped out you'd freed it you'd set your goal like did you jump up and down and woohoo did you do the normal thing where you're like oh we're on top of el cap let's let's get out of here kind of thing i mean what would it look like to finish this thing we were happy but you know it was not like this huge, glorious prize. It was like, yeah, this is, this is great. The nose went free. And we were, I think Brooke is a pretty quiet, understated guy. Mm-hmm. So um, there was a big smile on our faces. But it wasn't like, you know, woohoo, you know, not, not exaggerated. Mm-hmm. But yes, we were happy. I think that people thought that that was the bigger news than the following year when I did it in a day. I thought that was a lot harder, and and the only reason I really did it again in a day was because I thought that it could be done better. And I thought, well, actually, yeah, it could be done better, um, but even better by linking it in one day mm-hmm. instead of like a sport climb, you know, that's only 100 feet or 200 feet. This is 3,000 feet that, you know, my, my goal was to go ground to top without falling at all. Didn't succeed in that, but to free climb it in a day seemed like a much more difficult challenge than doing it over four days. Because if you fail, you can go down and rest and recover somewhat, maybe not so well, but better than, you know, on the fly. Sure. If you start failing at 514, 2,500 feet off the ground, you're not going to recover that mm-hmm. well. So it just required a lot more precision and flow and confidence in all the psychological factors that we talked about and, and more, you know? Well, in terms of the perspective, historically, you know, the, the nose, as you kind of were explaining, you know, you guys knew there was these two, basically these two sections, maybe three or four sections that hadn't been done yet, but there'd been kind of this work that had been done. Brooke had done some other people had been up there to free climb different bits. Ray had, you know, made his traverse up there even even decades before. But for me, like what you did on the first one day ascent of it, that blew the door open or blew it apart or whatever. This 
I think that probably for me is way more shocking. Like to have someone go up and, and clean these bits of aid up, you yourself had been doing that on roots your whole life. And you, you and John would go to these areas and find these roots that had some aid on them and, and clean them up. But to have someone go up there and then free climb it in a day, I mean, I think that is like the Han old solo of the, of the, uh, moonlight buttress. It just came out of nowhere and suddenly everybody was like, what you did? Who did what? That to me feels like it changed history in a much bigger way than, than maybe just freeing the nose had done. And, um, you know, and, and also I think set this kind of precedent where that tends to be like, this really big, important goal for a lot of people and started doing all those speed ascents of these free climbs. So that's just my perspective on, it. I don't hmm. know if you, if you can comment it on it anyway, but. Well, I think it, it might've changed people's thinking about Yosemite big walls because people thought of big wall climbing as aid climbing and camping out on a wall, but it was just really extending the whole sport climbing idea of let's free climb it. Let's link it. And let's, you know, let's just put it all together. And obviously, if you're efficient, you can do more at a higher level. So it was just an expansion of the, the free climbing goal. And it happened to be on, you know, one of the most amazing walls that we know of. You know, I think El Cap is, it's definitely famous for a reason. There, there aren't very many walls like that that are so accessible. I guess there are in places like, you know, Baffin Islands and right, out in the middle of nowhere. There's not a deli at the base of those and it's not sunny nice <laughs> most of the year. So, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just an astounding thing that I know you've hashed it a bunch of times with different people, but I really appreciate you talking about it because, you know, it, it, it was so historic and, and remains, you know, it really remains one of the greatest free climbing achievements, you know, that we, we've seen, you know, what's a relatively brief period of the sport, you know, free climbing has always been there, but you know, it's like a, a 30 or 40 year history, really, you know, starting in the seventies, but, but it's such a pinnacle. And also I think that, that something that marks it is the fact that it, it took quite a long time before what you did even started to get approached, you know, in terms of, these one day free ascents of these other routes or these other routes going free. And I've always said that these advancements need someone that, that has this ability to, to what we started talking about earlier, this ability to throw off convention, what's supposed to be done, what can be done, what can't be done and just like punch through. And, and um, it's just really impressive that, you know, whatever circumstances led you there, that you arrived on the top of that thing so free of all those conventions and so able to be your own thinker in terms of approaching that project. So, I mean, that, well, those are just compliments, but it's just, it's, thanks. you know, if there's one thing to take away from it, Oh, she had small fingers or she <laughs> blah, blah. None of that applies because what it really took was, was this huge lifting of all this stuff off of your mind and to do something in a, in a way that was so in a way rebellious, uh, to convention anyway, is just, you know, it's an astounding amount of mental fortitude to just say, I'm going to do this. And I don't care what the boys are doing, what the girls are doing, what gravity is doing, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. So, well, so I did kind of accidentally come up with that idea, not really accidentally, but 
I was approached by Jean Afanasieff, who's a uh, French alpinist filmmaker, and he's like, let's do a film together. And so it started out with this idea, let's do a film together. And I thought, well, I didn't feel like the nose story had been told. Like, it, it has a fascinating history, and it kind of shows you the evolution of gear and vision, starting from Warren Harding and all of his partners saying, let's climb this giant hunk of rock when they didn't even have the gear necessary. Well, they, they made the gear work. They had to invent their own. So I thought that that was a good story. And so when Jean approached me, I said, okay, let's, let's film free climbing the nose, but I'll add an element that'll make the story exciting. And that's, that's when I added the one day element. So it started out with a film project to try to tell a story, to communicate something about this amazing route and to share climbing with people. And that, that whole film project turned into be sort of a nightmare. It cost me a lot of money personally. Um, I was able to share my story, not in the way that, um, it's done today with, you know, a lot of support and better equipment and certainly a lot of like actual support around the climbing and, and filmmaking. But I had to take on co-producing the film, managing all of that while doing the climb. Sure. It was way more difficult because of the film and because of all these competing factors. And it's something that um, I don't often talk about because maybe people aren't as interested in it. But for me personally, that was a lot more difficult to manage the film part of it while trying to stay focused on the actual climbing. And I failed on that too. There were, you know, I ran out of chalk underneath the great roof the first time I tried it. <laughs> and my, my partner forgot his belay device. So we right. were up on a 3000 foot wall with one rope and no belay device. So, you know, things do go wrong. When I first started getting into wall climbing, we used to make a joke about, you know, Murphy's law is always in effect on a wall. Sure. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. You know, when you drop your haul bag or you drop your food bag or whatever, I didn't drop my haul bag, but I did drop the food bag once early on. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so, um, all these factors of difficulty seem to multiply the, the higher the wall. And so you're, you know, that's all part of the psychological challenge as well is just to try to take a big breath and don't freak out if something goes wrong. Right. And that can apply to even, you know, shorter routes where like something goes wrong, a whole, you know, doesn't feel right, but you, you keep going anyway. And, uh, I think that's what I like about climbing is that you can, you can mess up and still come back and, and, and keep going. You don't have to make a decision about, Oh, that's terrible. I'm in it. I'm, I'm never going to do this. You know, mm -hmm. those are all those judgments. So let me ask you one more question about this. You did the one day ascent, you produced this film, you know, I guess this is not literally, but what did you feel like, uh, you know, a day after? the one day center or the week after, you know, once you had cleared this table of this project and, and this enormous mental strain that you were just talking about, like, what did it look like in, you know, a week later or two weeks later? Well, I don't think that I, I fully understood the impact of what I'd done. I knew that the route was hard. And even though Brooke didn't do the changing corners pitch, he was saying, ah, yeah, it looked like it was about 13C. And I was like, well, I'm going to call it 13D, I think. And it might have 
been reported as 13C. I don't even know. Because to me, the numbers weren't that important. I just knew that it was a style of climbing that is not that popular in today's world, even less so now. People are into really hard roots, but they're not roots with no holds. They're roots with holds that are steep and continuous. Sure. So it was just a style that I knew would be challenging. So deep down, I kind of knew that I'd, I'd left the bar pretty high and that there weren't going to be very many people that were going to just walk up and do this because, first of all, there weren't very many people that were professional or, or at least full-time climbers that could afford the time to do it, um, which is just a logistical factor, but also just having the ability to climb at a high level and be proficient at all the technical you know, placing gear, because a lot of the people that I was climbing with at that time were Europeans that didn't know how to jam at all. Like, they could climb 514, but they couldn't jam 59. Sure. Some of them. So I, I like the fact that it this was a climb that would require well-rounded experience, and I knew that even people, you know, my heroes, people like Ron Kauk, he tried El Cap way back in the early 80s, and, uh, you know, he was wearing a swami belt and they didn't hang dog. And I think he only had like a couple of camming devices. And like, you know, he was up against a route that required a certain level of ability and experience that he didn't have at that time. But, um, you know, he he came back. You know, he's another person that he had his upbringing in climbing. And then he went over to Europe and he climbed, I think, 14B at the age of... 50-something? I don't know. So he kind of, um, he, he experienced all the different aspects of climbing, too, eventually. All right, I want to get a couple questions in that, that were at least inspired by some folks on, uh, on my Facebook page. So um, what has changed for you? You, you, um, you have a son now. How old is Owen? Owen is 10. Okay, so you've, you've had a son for 10 years. So, so, you know, I think a lot of modern climbers... It's a little different now. Have sort of normalized families when back in the 70s, at least the crew you hung out with were, were definitely outside of that paradigm quite a bit. So people kind of want to know, like, what did your climbing life change in terms of, of having a kid and how are you uh, keeping it going? Well, it's changed a lot. Um, the main thing is that I don't have, like, the freedom to just go on a trip wherever. Sure. Um, even to rifle, you know, which mm -hmm. is only three hours, three and a half hours, um, because it takes time away from home and I'm the primary parent. So mm -hmm. somebody's got to be here to feed and, you know, take care of a child. So that's the reality. It would be a lot easier if I had a partner that I could, you know, kind of share that responsibility. Um, he does see his dad, but not as often mm -hmm. as, you know, I'm accountable. So, so I don't go on trips that much, um, which is hard, but you know, I look at my life and I see it in a, a larger perspective. I think you, you kind of have to have a broad perspective in life in a lot of ways. I mean that symbolically and, and in this particular example, because Owen's, he, it feels like, you know, 10 years went really quick. I agree. And, <laughs> and now, you know, 10 more years, he'll be 20. He'll be Hayden, right. you know, or Hayden's a little bit older. But the point is that I, I look at my choices and see that 
maybe my impulse is to go and you know travel and do this or that. But how important is it really when what Owen needs is, is stability and he needs his life and he needs to have things the way that um, he wants them for his own development. And it's different than me. What he, you know, it's unfortunate that he doesn't want to just go rock climbing like Robin and Didier's kids, but um, maybe that's a blessing too. You know, he's a different guy that likes different sorts of things, and and I'm not going to force him to climb. He likes to climb, but he told me that it wasn't his thing, and maybe that will change. And it doesn't even matter. It'd be nice to share those kind of trips together, but then again, that's not what parenting is about. And you don't get to choose a lot of those factors. You've got to be the one to guide your child and do the right things. All right, uh, this comes from our friend Lisa. What is dinking? <laughs> the dink sister. Well, the, Lisa and I would dink away. Well, usually that meant like drinking coffee and chatting. Oh, God. Okay. I know what it is then. Dinking I, I is like futzing around. There's lots of different words that you could plug in. Dinking around is, I think it's incredibly productive. And this will lead into a sideways thought, which is reflection. Time to think, time to not do is very important. Just like, you know, people think, I want to get strong, I want to train, train, train. Well, you also need to relax in order to get strong because after you train, your body needs to recover. And so dinking serves the purpose of relaxing, I guess, and approaching life with a certain kind of luxury that you don't have to be stressed, you don't have to be running from one thing to another. And in fact, one of my favorite things to do is um, I make a joke about it. I'll call it my joke, tub talks. You know TED Talks? Mm -hmm. um, people get up and they give this whole talk about some subject. Well, I think it's important to have tub talks, which are intimate talks, and in the sense that it's you in your bathtub, you're naked and warm, and you get to have a relationship with yourself and, and have conversations with yourself, not necessarily verbal, but the idea is that you actually kind of work through stuff in your mind. It could be like going for a walk or a run. People do that. You know, it's like processing and reflecting. But there's something even better about tubs that I've found kind of, um, maybe that's my escape for not being able to go rock climbing. I can go into my tub world and, and actually reflect on things in a way that gives me clarity. Tub talks. Tub talks. <laughs> that's my solution. <laughs> Um, another question is, what do you think about um, the women climbers today who are lighting it up? Well, you know, when you say women climbers, the, the first person that pops to mind is Sasha DeJulian, who impresses me because she's going to Columbia and studying marketing or, you know, serious pursuit in college. And she's somehow able to fly around weird, huh? to Spain. <laughs> well, okay, she's got sponsorship and support. And yeah, people but still, pay just for that. logistically, time-wise, time-wise, it's amazing. She must have flexibility in her academic schedule and understanding professors or whatever. But it's it's really intense to be studying and training and and pushing and climbing like that. So I'm impressed with that. It just brings up the point that the climber of today is a different breed of person than the, the kind of person that got into climbing when I first started. We were people that didn't conform and we were, you know, 
kind of cast off from society and the norms and everything, that's only one person in, in women mm-hmm. climbing today. There's there's other people um, that are pushing it in the trad area and big walls like Mayan. And a lot of people like Kate Rutherford going to Patagonia and uh, a lot of women, Madeline Sorkin. There's also Quinn Brett, who's doing a lot of big wall free climbing, uh, mostly trad style in places like Greenland. She went on a trip with uh, Madeline Sorkin. And um, there's really amazing things going on in bouldering. One of the strongest women I've seen um, just move per move is Anna Storr. She's Austrian and amazing. They jump on boulders like in a way that I, I wouldn't have ever conceived of in climbing. They do like two different moves at once. And of course they have like really high level training, coaches, support, even the military. She's kind of sponsored part by private companies and part by the government because she's paid to train. Right. Yeah, the whole European model is a little different over there. So, yeah. so you know, you've just named a bunch of names, and, and I don't think there's a woman rock climber in the United States that can't and won't point to you as some sort of inspiration for them. Do you feel that legacy? I mean, what do you think about your influence over a 40-year climbing career? Well, I'm happy that people are inspired by things that I've done and that I'm a kind of reference because I've been here for so long, <laughs> climbing and, and different aspects of the sport. I, I just hope that people have a good time and are safe and, and learn about themselves and other people, because I think that climbing is really just a pretext to understand ourselves and, and get closer to the people that we're with and, and learn how to work together and and i don't know i guess just learn how to become a better person through that process all right i think that's a really good place to end um <laughs> because yeah we've been going a while here so um let's wrap it up is there anything else you want to want to tell us well one of these days i will finish the art of free climbing it's this video i've been working on part time for 6 years it's really hard to figure out how to present climbing. So it's, it's like the tub time that I referred to. It's, it's, I need sometimes to step back from these things and think about it from a lot of different perspectives. And nobody's ever really presented climbing quite the way that I'm trying to do it with graphics to show the, the forces. And, and I think it does help to understand the mechanics of climbing, even if when we do it, it's a very intuitive process. I think the, uh, the marriage of both intuition and, and this analytical side is a, is a pretty interesting way to, to uh, think about climbing or not think about climbing. And so um, I'm putting this together as some kind of contribution in a, in a tangible way mm-hmm. so that if you're a beginner climber or you just want to show something to someone that wants to get into climbing, you could say, here, check this out. This is the art of free climbing and it's, you know, this is what we think about or don't think about when we climb. So you've been at it for six years. Can you, can you even dare to, to tell us a possibility when we might see it? Well, I, I, day? I really want to finish it by the end of this year because I'm tired of thinking about it not being done. And it really, the problem is that when you try something new, I mean, it seems new to me, you don't really know um, how to go about it. So you try a lot of different things and some things work and some things don't. So I'm not going to 
finish the project until I feel like I've executed what it is that I set out to do. But um, it's an arbitrary thing, you know, when is it done? And that hopefully will be in the year 2014. And uh, from there, other people can take that concept and, and bring it further along. But at least I've given it that start and, uh, and hopefully it will continue to evolve. Well, awesome. Thanks. We'll look forward to that. And uh, again, I really appreciate the time that you put in this this afternoon. Thanks a lot, Lynn. You're welcome. Thanks, Chris. And by the way, happy birthday, AJ. All right, folks. Thanks for sticking around for two parts of an epic interview with one of the greatest, the legend, Lynn Hill, also one of the sweetest. Even though she's sort of a major celebrity, she's very approachable. So if you see her at the cliff, make sure and say hi. Also, if you are interested in more details about Lynn's life, she does have a book that's pretty much out of print. You can find it here and there, but one easy place to find it is on her website, lynnhillclimbing.com. The book is Climbing Free, My Life in the Vertical World. If you head over to her website, you can order one of those up. I think she's actually got a dwindling supply, so you may want to do that sooner than later. If you uh, also found this interview because of your obsession with Lynn Hill and had never heard the Enorma Cast before, we've got 50 other episodes over at enormacast.com. Check out my somewhat lame website over there, but you know it's not really about the website. It's about this, about the program. But there's a bunch of stuff there. You can click through to our sponsors. You can get a t-shirt. You can uh, figure out some other ways to help out. So have a look at enormacast.com. What's coming up next on the Enormacast? Well, I never like to make predictions because things change so often. Maybe I got something cool in Mexico. But I do have an interview with brand new Papa, Josh Wharton, in the bag. So that'll be coming up in March sometime. All right. Thanks for listening. When this comes out, spring climbing season in Colorado, at least, and much of the United States will be just around the corner. Hang on, people. Hang on. If you're getting by masochistically ice climbing or climbing inside that gym, those gyms are dangerous places. Tons of accidents in the gym. It's still important to check your knot. This morning, a woman adventure writer, John Krakauer, called, quote, not just one of the best female climbers, but one of the all-time greats. Just 5'2 and weighing no more than 100 pounds, Hill appears almost delicate until you see her bulging biceps and forearms. 